Welcome to A Common Thread Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Broadbooks. We live in a world that is increasingly polarized. Compassion and empathy is at an all-time low. It's time for a change. By listening to the stories of others, we can gain a new perspective and understanding. And hey, don't worry if you don't agree. The goal of this podcast is that you would hopefully connect to a person's story maybe you haven't heard before, and your circle will get bigger. married to beautiful we're sitting in your house and you have an amazing bobblehead of your beautiful wife i know isn't that great playing golf so amy's with us yeah she is with us amy's on the, <laughs> amy's on the podcast amy thanks for being here my, my grandpa uncle and dad holding mink pelts in that picture it's terrifying. <laughs> it's beautiful and we've got leo the dog with us yep leo's pretty interested in what's going on that's great um brian before, if I know someone who I interview on the podcast, I like to tell our story of friendship. So here we go. Okay. We became friends <laughs> during seminary. Yep. And we were, it was my first class at seminary, Old Testament, which you were in. And I worked so hard on this paper. Also, the professor saw, shall remain, remain nameless. Great guy, but not very clear with what he wanted. Mm-hmm. So I spent hours on this paper and I wrote it. And then I like gave it to the professor and I told him what he d- I did. And he's like, you did it all wrong. And then I started weeping. You did. <laughs> Tears. Said, if you don't do this the right way, you're going to fail, girl. <laughs> were his exact words. And tears were just streaming. They and I, did. I couldn't stop it. No. And then afterward, I remember you just kind of slapped my arm a bit. You were just like, how you doing? You're going to be okay. I was, then, I was worried about you. <laughs> and then we were friends. Yeah. Taylor was Rebel in that class too. Yeah, she Shout was. out to Rebel Herd. Yeah. And Taylor. Hey, Rebel. Taylor. <laughs> my, my first memory of you was before that. I was downstairs before we even started because we were in spiritual formation. I think we will. <laughs> <laughs> Can't you hear yourself saying no, that? No, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's... So many people have told me that I have just come up to them and said, I'd like to be friends with you. Yeah. Because I feel like when I'm 31, when you reach a certain age where there's no beating around a bush, you see someone that you want to be friends with and you're like, you just state it. Yeah. Which could be creepy. It could kind of be like a stalker. Or it could also just be adorable. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it worked for us. It worked for us. <laughs> so anyway, and then... Thus began our journey as seminary friends. Yeah, lots and of classes. many classes together. And there's a part of me that's sad that I graduated in May, and that I don't have any more seminary classes with you. Yeah, I know. I miss you. But you graduated in May. <clears throat> what is What will your degree be? I'm going to have a Master of Divinity, and uh, I currently work as a chaplain at a Vera McKinnon Hospital, mm-hmm. and that is my ministry. I'll continue on there. God moves me in a different direction. That's really cool. The first question that I love to ask people is, what does it look like to say yes to Jesus in your life? So kind of a two-part question is, what's the first time you remember saying yes to Jesus? And what does that yes look like continually you saying yes to Jesus every day? Yeah. Um, I grew up in a 
little Baptist church in Burke, South Dakota, and my mom tells me, I don't particularly remember it, but when I was five, I wanted to get baptized, and she was asking me, you know, what that meant to me, and I said I wanted Jesus in my heart and some different things, and but the church wouldn't let me because I wasn't old enough to really understand what I was doing. Um, so as a, as a kid, it was more a part of just what you did, kind of mechanical. I think as I continued to grow up, my faith was really kind of more of an appendage in my life as being a guiding force. And so probably six or seven years ago, I have what I call my spiritual renaissance. Um, you know, I had always been a follower of Christ, but... It just wasn't all-encompassing in my life as much as um, I think God wants it to be. And so now when I say yes to Jesus, what that means to me is I just want to become more Christ-like. And I think what that means is um, my heart's more servant-oriented. For a long time, my spirituality was inward-focused, so I was a little more concerned about my own faith, joy, love, hope, peace, you know, a lot of those feelings. It felt good, and so I wanted to grow, but just a little bit more selfish. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't a complete jerk, but <laughs> I um, I think as I've grown, and especially through seminary, I just realized how more and more and more um, Christ really models this life of servanthood that we need. Mm-hmm. He's, he tells us that um, to make our joy complete in John 14, or it's John 15, to make our joy more complete, we should give up our life like he did. Mm-hmm. And so that paints a, a picture of servanthood in my life. And that's what it means, I guess, to me to say yes to Jesus, mm-hmm. is to just give more and more of myself to the kingdom. That's beautiful. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. How, we're both in some, well, you're currently in seminary, I was in seminary, and I want to go back to the seminary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like my life, like I look back at the years that I spent in seminary as some of the most formative years of my life, like figuring out why I believe what I believe and seeing the diversity of the body of Christ and growing so much. What, what has your experience been like at the seminary and as you graduate in May, like what are some, like several things you're like, I'm going to. I'm going to take away from this experience or these are the things that have really shaped me to where, who I am today as a person. Mm -hmm. It's been transformative in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, My emotional health has gotten so much better. Mm There have been a lot of of just that first year I went through a depression of sorts. Mm -hmm. You know, I, um, I was a funeral director for 25 years and I just felt God changing my, desires in life and just pushing me in a direction that all I knew it was just go to seminary. I didn't really have any idea what I was supposed to do. I kind of thought chaplaincy, but I wasn't sure at all. And um, a part of that, I think a lot of, a lot of my identity has changed. And so a quick story, as a funeral director, you're, you go through some really hard times, sometimes the hardest thing that people go through, and you form a bond with them, and you really receive a lot of affirmation. So it wasn't just through my job, but I found that my identity was really steeped in receiving affirmation from outside myself. Mm-hmm. 
affirmation of people. It was really tied into affirmation of people. And so praise really inflated me and criticism mm -hmm. just killed me. And so as I started to realize that about myself, um, I started to let that go. And Henry Nowen says that the basis of all ministry, and I'm going to paraphrase here, is to step into the unlimited and unlimiting love of Jesus because it frees us from our need for affirmation from outside. And so now I just love myself better. I see myself as a beloved child of Christ. You know, Timothy Keller says, um, in the freedom of self-forgetfulness that the way we forget about ourselves is to just the, the very very second that we place our faith in Christ God sees us perfectly through Jesus and he says to us that hey you are my beloved child Brian and if you are well pleased and so that's changed my identity in a sense of um, actually allowing me to love people better because I can love myself better and therefore, I think, be more of a servant like Jesus was. Um, and so that's my hope. And so that's one of the largest transformations is just really a, a shift of my focus. Mm -hmm. My spirituality isn't as much about Brian as it is about the kingdom. Now, that's always going to be a part of me, that mm -hmm. identity and, and fighting that need for affirmation. You know, it just doesn't go away, but I can certainly be aware of it when I start to feel that need mm -hmm. of um, thinking I'm something through human um, emotional means, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, go ahead. I think that it's, whenever people hear about seminary, mm -hmm. I think there's this idea that seminary is for people that know what they want to do, and it's for pastors, and it's for those that want to shepherd a flock yeah, in a church setting. Right, right. And I had a very similar experience to you in seminary where I was like, had someone approach me about going to seminary and I literally laughed in their face and I was like, <laughs> I am never going back yeah. to school. And then an opportunity came up where it was going to be all paid for. And like, I even then was like, I'm good. Yeah. <laughs> and like my husband was like, this is a free education. Like you should just do it. And I was yeah. like, I don't want to be a pastor and talking with the Sioux Falls seminary and like all the people there that there's so many people that enter the seminary at Sioux Falls, mainly because it's so affordable too that you're able to go on this journey of like discipleship, learning about yourself and God transforms you in the process as opposed to seeing so many people like that. And there are those that do want to be pastors, mm -hmm. but I've seen so many people like me and you that were just like, God told me to do this yeah. and I don't know why. And right. I, I don't, I think that maybe I, I want to do something here, but I don't know what it is. And I'm going to go on this journey and see what God's going to do. And it is really cool to see that over time, like, God confirms things. Like, yeah. you are a chaplain. Like, you went in with, like, maybe I'm going to do this, and then it solidified as you went on your journey. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really beautiful. And something that in your story is so remarkable remarkable to me is that you, 25 years for, for a funeral director. Correct. And that's a long time to do something. Mm -hmm. And you, like, you were, on your, you were on a path of, like, could retire you know an x amount of time and you left a job that was extremely comfortable comfortable in the sense of like you'd been doing it for a long time mm -hmm. not comfortable in the sense that dealing with death isn't easy thing. right right but you were in this career mm -hmm. and you gave it all up because god told you to because mm -hmm. god made it clear that's amazing to me 
because so many people hold on to their comfort. I mean, me too. Yeah. But I've always wanted to surrender to God and to walk into what he has for me. But it's harder the longer you're in something. Yeah. The more comfortable and easy it is. Um, do you remember a moment that God spoke to you about leaving? Or was it this kind of gradual process of like unrest or unease to entering seminary? Yeah. It was... For the most part, it was a gradual transformation. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, for a long time, you know what? My, I had a boat. We had a boat, and I loved it. Like a boat for like a week. Yeah, yeah. And we loved going over to Okaboji. And there's a part of me that's like, yep, you know, if I just keep working until this age, you know, I could have retired pretty early. Mm -hmm. And I was pretty focused on just uh, getting a lake place and boating and... It sounds odd, but the boat was just a, a, a large focus and something I loved doing. And one day, and this was kind of the start of it, I just came up to Amy. I'm like, I think I'm supposed to sell our boat. And she looks at me because she knew how much I loved it. She's like, okay, you know, if, if you want to. And to me, that was, I think, a step in obedience. And it sounds like a small thing, but it was really quite large. Because after then we sold the boat, just little things started happening. Mm -hmm. One day, I remember specifically, though, Amy and I were having a cheeseburger at Bert's Lounge in Beersford. <laughs> and I just looked at her, and I started getting tears in my eyes. Mm -hmm. And I just said, I think I'm supposed to do something else. And she looked up at me, and she goes, I think you are, too. And we didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was. And I started exploring more. And I talked to Susan Reese. And after talking to her about seminary, I was thoroughly confused, but very excited. And it was scary. And the picture just started becoming clearer and clearer. And it was hard to say goodbye. And it was hard to, you know, tell my partners that I was going to do something else because I felt I was letting them down. But once I started, you know, and I went through a, a year where I didn't work, I just committed myself to studying. My identity started to change. God started to change things. Being in a, ch a chaplain, there's a lot more anonymity in it, you know, as, as opposed to as the funeral director in a small town, you get to know a lot of people. And I had that kind of constant affirmation of what I was doing. That's the way God molded me. You know, in, in hospital chaplaincy, there's more anonymity. Um, but back to that process, there's always still a little doubt. So as clear as things kind of became, you still have to take a leap of faith. But mm -hmm. I like to t say that I really kind of more jumped off a curve than a tall building mm -hmm. because God really cleared the path. Yeah. And even one of the last things Amy and I were like, before we had decided for sure that this is what I would do, we thought maybe we should sell our house. Yeah. We're just, we both, you know, to sell the boat and then maybe we should sell our house. And we love this old house. It had a lot of character. We're like, we don't have, we had an apartment we could use and, we didn't have to sell it. And we thought, well, we'll just wait and see. Maybe, you know, if it sells great, if not, no big deal. It sold the very first day we put it on the market to the first people that looked at it. And so mm -hmm. God just opened a lot of doors and made things um, easy in a sense. Mm -hmm. Transition. Mm -hmm. That is, I, I look at a lot of, I well, moving from the Midwest, from the West Coast, I don't say this in like a, there's so many beautiful things about the Midwest and about people in the Midwest, but mm -hmm. there is this 
this culture where things are very comfortable here. Yeah. Living is like, it's very affordable. Mm-hmm. Everything, there's a lot of things that come with a lot of ease. The Midwest is full of like hardworking people, you know, and, but often that hardworkingness and that sense of like being comfortable, there can just be a lot of, is the word atrophy? Is that the word I'm looking for? Do you know, like a weakening (laughs) of like, just like not wanting to grow or step out of your comfort zone? Definitely. And you living in like a beast of a city like LA it's so expensive. It's so crazy. Like you're forced to rely on God in a way mm-hmm. that can be hard, harder here. Yeah. And I've noticed that since I've lived here of like my husband and I praying like, okay, God, we don't want to get too comfortable. Yeah. Where, and cause things feel easy. Like we look at our bank account, we're like doing fine, you know? And it's like in LA never had a savings account. You yeah. Know what I mean? Yes. And yeah. so my prayer is always like when I look across Sioux Falls that man God would you awaken me would you awaken like more people to stepping out of our comfort zone because I just don't it's something that I don't see a lot of and so it's so beautiful when I hear stories and I'm inspired when I hear stories of like I like I I was comfortable but God called me to something and I said yes and he'll like always see me through it even of course there's going to be difficult times but that's just been something that I've noticed moving from the coast to mm-hmm. to here, to the Midwest. It's easy to rely on our comfort. It's easy to rely on the comfort of a bank account. Right. It's <laughs> easy for me to rely on on what the the things in life that we think really provide us comfort when I wonder how many people and I know I do at the end of the day if I remove all of the the um, things, you know things I do to occupy my mind and to occupy my time and all the stimuli and and when I can just be completely quiet there's still this this um, existential angst mm-hmm. a loneliness almost of sorts mm-hmm. that only God can fill yeah. and so um, easy to rely on those comforts to try to fill that void mm-hmm. but it's always God calling us for something I mean God's always there calling and learning, like, in seminary, in the spiritual disciplines with Susan Reese. Yeah. <laughs> Susan, we love you. <laughs> Susan Reese is amazing. Well, She's that like line it. I just borrowed is from mm-hmm. Ruth Haley Barton mm-hmm. in Sacred Rhythms. And yeah. she talks about that, that emptiness. That and I don't. It's not an emptiness. Sure. It's a longing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That if we can get rid of the comforts and the, the things that occupy our mind and our time that they, they, some of them matter, some of them don't. It's just, you know, how that affects us, that comfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Remember the retreat of solitude we had to do? Yeah, I'm not good at those. <laughs> I was dying. I, like, I went out to, like, Good Earth Park in Sioux Falls, and I was like, there's birds chirping, and I was, like, didn't have my phone, and I was like, pray, pray, Beth, and then I was like, I want to talk to someone. I, <laughs> I did it, though. I did that assignment, yeah. and I thrived. I didn't really thrive, but I'm, I I got through it. I, I, I went and sat in a friend's funeral chapel when there wasn't anything going on, just so there was nothing around me and no TVs and anything, and it was, it was hard. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet place, though. Mm-hmm. How do you bring the presence of God in a very chaotic 
at times in a extremely grieving place mm-hmm. with people. I think, and I've learned this, you know, definitely I've learned and grown and even a lot in the last couple of years. Um, first of all, it's just spiritual gifting. Everybody's gifted to do something. Everybody. That's beautiful. And I could never be a junior high teacher. I would probably be arrested for assault. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just, God has given me gifts of empathy yeah. and of mercy and of hospitality. And I think what we really need to realize is you can't fix somebody's pain. Mm-hmm. There's nothing I can do to take it away. Mm-hmm. You know, for a long time, um, I remember when I was a little kid, I had a, a situation where my dad came to me and and he was having some difficulties in his life, and he came upstairs and was going to pray with me, and he ends up pouring his heart out to me. So now, I love my dad, you know, but none of us are perfect, and here I was, an eight-year-old kid, mm-hmm. feeling responsible for my dad's emotions mm-hmm. and to take care of him, and so I've always kind of had this inclination that I wanted to remove somebody's pain, mm-hmm. but you can't, mm-hmm. and, and I think so many times, you know, we hear this phrase like, oh, I never go to funerals, or it's hard for me to visit people in the hospital because I don't know what to say. You don't need to say anything. Yeah. Not really. Because there's nothing you can say that's going to change what's happened. Mm-hmm. But people just want to be sat with. And um, the understanding, you know, also, I think we've all been in situations where we're going through something hard and somebody will say, oh, that's just God's plan. Yeah. Oh, you're going to be better for it. Oh, you know what we really just need to hear oftentimes is, I am really sorry for what you're going through. I, I don't know what it's like. I can't even imagine. But I'm here for you. I care about you. I love you. And so that's a lot of what I do as a chaplain is just allow people to express what they're going through. You know, I think it's healthy for us to tell our stories. Mm-hmm. And um, just to... A, a phrase I learned in clinical pastoral education is to hear people in speech mm-hmm. because it's often healing for us to be able to describe our emotion or what we're going through and how it's affecting us in a given moment because it helps to process through it. Mm-hmm. And um, another piece that um, I think is so difficult, and we've talked about this before, but it's suffering. And there are a lot of different theological ideas about suffering and why it happens, and we would not have the time today to discuss those. But I've I've held different positions. But I think at some point, we just have to understand that suffering is a part of life. I think we've talked about, you know, when I, I began seminary, I had some kind of idea that I would come away with all this knowledge. And really what I've come away with, and you hear this often, is a lot more questions. But I've also come away with a trust that God is working behind the scenes in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. But it's human nature, and it's my nature. I want to make sense of it. I want my suffering needs to have a reason, and God wouldn't allow it if it you know, has to stand for something. And we've talked, too, how it's human nature to try to define God in human terms. Mm-hmm. And so we try to make sense of suffering in human terms when we can't because we can't describe God in human terms because he's not human. He's God. You know, and so I, Henry Nowen again, I like Henry Nowen. 
he talks about in The Wounded Healer that the greatest gift that we can give to people in a pastoral sense is to help them understand that they are going to suffer. They're not unique. They're not being picked on. God isn't some cosmic bully. Things just happen. And so this is where we can get into theological differences, but I just believe at some point we have to get to the spot where we trust God's goodness in light of suffering. And that's what Noun's basically saying. If you can just help people understand, that's a part of life. God loves us deeply, but bad things happen. And so it's it's just encouraging people and listening to them and the answer for them, but sitting with them as they process through what's going on. Also, the mystery of God or God in the box. And I think the people trying to turn religion into systems. Yeah. We're back. This will all be edited out, so it'll be one gotcha. beautiful flow okay. the whole way around. Um, but when we were at lunch a couple weeks ago, I was just talking to you about this past season being really hard. And, and I've heard this from other Christians too. Like I think everyone goes through seasons where they question and they doubt. Yeah. And my journey has never been that I've questioned God existence. Although right. I know that some people have, and they have to like go on their journey with that. But my journey has always been like, is God good? And if yeah. God is good, then like, why is there pain and why is there suffering? And have really wrestled with that for years. Even like in seminary, it was kind of the thing where I always was like, I, I don't actually know if you're good. Yeah. And I want to know that you're good and I yeah. want to be able to say it. Um, but in this past year and a half, being such a hard season of life and experiencing like loss and a lot of things I've had to wrestle with God on, I remember just sitting on my floor and crying and journaling and talking to God. And I felt God's presence in a way that really changed the way I saw things. And I felt like God was like, you have to stop focusing on the why and you have to focus on the who you have to focus mm. on me and my character. Yeah. And so when I let go of all the theological answers around suffering that really make me mad and that I've never like I'm like well if God is like that bye bye <laughs> like yeah. you've just put God in this box and I don't think that's who God is and I really felt God speak to me of like no one has it figured out yeah like no one has suffering figured out Beth but you know what is true that I am a good God that I am kind that I'm close to the brokenhearted that I bring peace to those who are mourn and those are the things that I felt like God was like, focus on my character. Don't focus on the why. And I felt just like a free little bird after that. Yes. And I was like, I yeah. don't have the answers. And theologian, you don't because you make me mad. And right. it's not, I don't think it's wrong at all to, to grapple with those no, things theologically, no. which I have for years. But there's a point where you just have to let it go. Oh, yeah. And you just have to be like, okay, I just am going to focus on who you are, God. Um, and the hardest thing you're right in, in suffering when people are suffering is Christians say the worst things it seems. Oh, yeah. And they give you these answers of like, well, God just needed that person to be with them or, you know, just like really horrible things of 
but it's like that's not helpful. Like what's helpful is someone's a person's a community's presence around a friend that is in yes. pain. It's like the rallying of support, emotional, and like in this really hard season, my friend Anna um, in LA said the most significant thing to me. She was like, Beth, I have faith where you don't have faith right now. Yeah. And I was just like, okay. Like, and she was like, I know that you're going to get through this. And to be able to hear one of my really good friends, like declare, you're going to be okay. Like, it's not always going to be like this. I was like, okay. Like, I trust you, even though I don't, like, I don't feel this right now. Right. And I just, I just really do wish that we could all grasp the power of like presence with people and the power of sitting with people in pain and not having all the answers. And that's like what you do every day. Yeah. You've hit on a number of things that I've put a lot of thought and reading and discussion with, with friends and colleagues. And, you know, it's been so easy for me to want to, to make my whole religion a system. Because systems are attainable. You know, when God is a system, I can go through the Bible and I can follow, I can do all the right things. And and it's something you can attain. We can control. So in a sense, we make God into an idol of sorts because you can control idols. But we can't. And the same with suffering. It's excellent to grapple with it. And I'll never question anybody's theological standpoint I might question it, but I will respect it. Mm-hmm. But you can poke holes in a lot of those classic suffering theories. You know, if God's all-knowing, you know, why does he allow bad things to happen? You know, if God's all-seeing, why can't he see something that's going to happen and change it? Um, at a certain point, we have to, I believe, I have to understand that I cannot definitively define why suffering happens. And it's like you said, we just trust in that character of God. We trust that God is moving us forward in his plan of redemption. I think it's it's been real easy for Christians to look at the model of Job. Because when Job suffered, the Bible tells us that God allowed Satan to torture Job. But what we forget about, and N.T. Wright points this out in a book, or actually a little essay that he wrote about suffering, is that if we're going to look at a biblical view of suffering, we also have to look at it through the eyes of Christ. Because God suffered. Jesus suffered. Mm -hmm. So when we suffer, Jesus suffered the ultimate suffering, the suffering we can never understand. And so when we suffer, instead of maybe thinking, why is God letting this happen? Why did God make this happen? Why is he this puppeteer that's making my life hell right now? Mm -hmm and realize that God suffers right along with us. And so when we look at through suffering through the lens of the cross, we connect with God. And even though, and, but guess what? We're still going to be mad. And it's okay to be angry. I talk to a lot of people, and they feel guilty for being angry at God. But God can handle our anger. He wants us to come to him in anger. Look at the Psalms. God inspired someone to write and the psalms are prayers so he inspired people to write these prayers back to him in a sense he authored his own prayers but you see a whole myriad of suffering in the psalms and people crying out screaming out 
that's what we're supposed to do as we grapple through suffering. And I, I guess I don't. I think somebody wouldn't really be honest if they could say they went through their life without ever being angry at God at yeah. some level. Yeah. It's okay. It's normal. Um, suffering just it, it sucks. Yeah. It's not easy and it's hard. And um, but at the end of the day, like you mentioned, there's so much freedom mm-hmm. in just understanding that God loves us mm-hmm. and He's on a, a course of redeeming mankind yeah and he's at work behind us and we don't have to describe we don't have to definitively know why it happened we just trust and i think that's where the freedom that's what noun encouraged and he said the greatest gift you can give somebody is the freedom to know that suffering just happens Mm. (laughs) i love that it like it it touches my heart i know i guess i never thought about suffering like that that when I'm suffering, like Christ is suffering alongside me. And Christ did suffer. Yes. So we can say God's not immune to what's going on. It's mm-hmm. easy for people to think God's just sitting up there letting all this garbage happen on earth and stuff happening to us. No. Yeah. He went through everything that we go through. Yeah. So he can identify with us. Yeah. He can empathize with us. He can yeah. be merciful to us. Yeah. There's that verse. Oh, my gosh. I'm. Ugh, look at me. Seminary grad. Hard to quote scripture, but in he is it Hebrews? You might know this better than I I do. But in Hebrews, it talks about how that Christ experienced everything that we did. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, the supremacy of Christ, yes. and and it talks about Jesus being able to be our high priest because yep. he's been there tempted in every way. Is it Hebrews fourteen? And we can. I think it's earlier. I think it's. In, Somewhere just between chapters one through four. We are not editing this out because I just want to say hashtag seminary grad. But it says we can approach yeah. yes. the throne with confidence. Yes, approach you know. Approach God with confidence knowing that he has suffered every temptation that we do. Mm-hmm. And so he's not just some off in the distance uh, puppeteer, you know, managing things to make us go through pain or the, yeah. I think it was Bruce Almighty, you know, Almighty Smiter, and the view of God zapping little ants with his magnifying glass. Yeah. I'm not a, it's not our God. No. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Am I weird for believing that? Uh, not everybody is. Do you, so how do you think, the church can kind of like grab a hold of that. Like that's kind of what I, sometimes when I look out like of how Christians respond to people in emotional, physical, or even like spiritual pain, Mm -hmm. there's just a lot of like disengaging or just these really easy kind of answers in the box of God that they have. What do you think that, how can we change (laughs) Ah, change. And I'm using we as me because I know that I'm not immune, you know, to, I've made it. No, I have not made it. First of all, I think it, you hit on a very foundational point. It's not we, it's me, it's Mm -hmm. I. So even in, you know, I look at political things. I'll read somebody's post on Facebook and I get angry. But yet then I don't understand why people can't be understanding of my viewpoint. And I have to, mm-hmm. to take into account my own 
reactions and be aware of how I respond. Because the more we get to know somebody, we humanize them. So even in the matter of, um, I didn't really understand transgender issues at all until I had a friend who has a transgender child. And I was brought into a whole different understanding and, and love and care for people in a situation I didn't understand one bit. And so I think for me, the more I get to know somebody, the more I get to know somebody of a different culture, it humanizes them instead of, you know, um, not understanding. The same with suffering. Uh, first of all, just we get over the fact it is uncomfortable. Mm. It is. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not easy to sit with somebody that's in sheer pain. Yeah. But yet we also have to understand that we're not responsible to fix it because we can't. Yeah. And so the change, I think, happens when we you know, suffer ourselves you know, a, a deep suffering or a dark night of the soul. So St. John of the Cross, you know, it's an often kind of a, a euphemism or a saying for somebody going through a hard time. Is to just put ourselves empathy, is putting yourself in the place of others and understanding from our own experiences, pain we felt, that we just, we don't need to be fixed. We want to be heard and we want to be loved. And so... I think the change comes for whether it's trying to sit with people in suffering or any common thread or bond, as mm -hmm. we, your podcast is titled, mm -hmm. can change only happen when we love and respect other people, even though they're different from us. It's hard. It's hard for me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard for me, you know, I'll hear an opposing view that I have and I have to take a step back. And I have a friend of mine, uh, she says that you need to look at somebody else's standpoint, and I don't even want to use the term argument, but just try to see and learn from what they're saying. And go, hmm, those are some good thoughts. I'm going to take that into account. Mm -hmm. So that's difficult, though, when you have somebody else who is not open to your viewpoint. Mm -hmm. That's going to happen. It does happen. It happens all the time. And to the best of my ability, I need to not react because they don't agree with me mm -hmm. or see it as I do or frustration, but try to understand where they're coming from. Does that make sense? Oh, it definitely makes perfect sense. Yeah. And it, I, that is what this whole podcast is about is building empathy and trying to really see the church become this beautiful representation of Christ. Yeah. And, you know, I think I can be harder on the church than I do with people outside of the church yeah, or people that have walked like away the from the church. Know, doesn't it? And it's like, but, but why should they know? You know, we're all just like broken people with our little broken pieces, like trying to, you know, gain more understanding in this world. And I think sometimes I even put people in the church on too high of a pedestal. Like they yeah. should know better. And it's like, right. but maybe they're, you know, and so I think that God is really, is really teaching me and that's my prayer of like help me have just as much empathy for people that are in the church that are sometimes really unkind as I do for people that have left the church or and you know or don't go to church and don't believe in God and but my highest dream is that the church would become a reflection of who Jesus like yeah. truly is and that obviously won't happen until 
this guy <laughs> because we live in a world that is cracked and flawed and it is cracked and flawed and broken and that's a great insight i look at my own brokenness and how that has precluded me from being able to be there for other people or another aspect i've not always been able to clearly articulate my belief or standing about a certain issue and when that's been the truth, if somebody has challenged that, I've gotten very defensive because I couldn't explain mm -hmm. why I believe something. And here I have somebody um, stating their case, or I, again, I don't want to say argument, but mm -hmm. making their point. And I get really defensive because I really maybe don't understand my point all that well. And so I think that's a, a pretty common issue. It certainly has mm -hmm. been in my life, but I think it's a common issue within church. And it's just, it's easier sometimes to just bury, it has been for me to bury my head in the sand mm -hmm. and not completely understand something or decide to, that I want to understand somebody else because mm -hmm. that takes energy. Yeah. And it moves me out of my comfort zone. Yeah. <laughs> the comfort zone words. Yeah. You said something that my friend Melissa and I chatted about we talked about how there's something beautiful about when you learn why you believe what you believe, or even sometimes you enter into like, even we took ethics together in ethics class, a seminary, right. and you, you're pretty sure you're like, I know why I believe what I believe, you know, in, for example, like I chose, um, we had to choose different topics and I wanted to study like, is women ordained ministry? Like, where do I stand on that? And right. I was like, I'm an egalitarian. <laughs> and then, uh, but I, when I had a conversation with someone that didn't think that women should be in ordained ministry, I got really mad. And I, I was like, Brian was, Brian was there. <laughs> <laughs> and it was because I didn't know why I believe what I believed. I just yeah. was like, oh, this is what I believe. And then I was like, but when I was. didn't know what he believed either. So. That's very true. <laughs> but it, when both people don't know what they believe and they think they believe oh, different things, wait. it's a kind of an explosion of yeah. things. And it took me on this three-month journey, however long the class was, three or four months of like, okay, I think I believe this, but I want to research why. And so in that space, you have to look at both sides of the equation, mm -hmm. egalitarianism versus complementarianism. And I left that study. I, I knew why I believed what I believed. But I also had so much compassion for people that don't think that because I was like, I can, I understand. Yeah. I read all the books, not, not all the books. There's a lot of books about this, but I read many books on why people take a conservative stance with women in church leadership. Yeah. And that is great with me. Yeah. Right. Like I'm probably not going to go to a church like that, but like. Oh, but you respect their informed res opinion. Yes. On the situation. Yeah. And, and so that's the way it's supposed to be. When you learn why you believe what you believe, you have more compassion. And there's even things that we've talked about, Brian, where I kind of scratch my head and I, with certain issues, and I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't actually know what I believe. And then I still have just as much compassion for both people because I'm like, I don't know. This is confusing. It can be very confusing. But it's those people that are very angry, like you said, that they've probably never looked into the why behind it. Why do they believe yeah, it? And not. have they looked into the other side of someone that thinks differently? It's hard to look into the other side when we don't want to, when I don't want to look into myself. Yeah. Yeah. Can we just talk about how that 
with that conversation when there was the explosion of me and that guy. Then there was beauty that came oh, from it. Oh, yeah. That I is, ended up having people cry in my arms yeah. and holding them. <laughs> and that but there was, was be- a conviction. I'm sorry. No. No, you're good. They, they had a conviction, too, of what mm-hmm. and how they reacted wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And so there was beauty in that moment, for sure. And there was conviction in me that after I got very grumpy and irritable and verbally, you know, like, lashed out in a way that I lash out, which I wasn't yelling. It was just, like, not my normal kind self. And I was really convicted by God that that, man, that's never a good place to live. And so I had to go back and be like, I'm so sorry for how I said these things. And then we like mended our little hearts. It was at the seminary. Guys, beautiful things happen at the seminary. But isn't that great how humility, when we're willing to be vulnerable and talk about our faults, and it allows other people then to talk about theirs because it's embarrassing and we feel shameful and shame makes us do a lot of stupid things and when we're able to be humble and express our apology and express that what we did wasn't right, it opens the door for those situations to happen. Yeah. And then you can move on your journey of friendship or at least just like a, a, a nod or a, a, hey, how you doing? And there's no animosity. Right. Um, yeah, you may never be losing like, buddies, but <laughs> at least there's not. There's not anger and right. resentment and bitterness. Yeah. Um, Brian, you know, the last question that I love to ask people that come on the podcast and we've, we've touched on this briefly, but being in seminary and seeing, um, even like I just mentioned, like we were in a seminary environment. We both love Jesus and there was disagreement and there, there ended unity, but there, there wasn't for, you know, a few days of a little bit of contentiousness towards one another. And my heart is like, how can a church that is very divided on different issues, politically, or even just like theologically, how can we find unity? Mm. And so, Brian, how do we find unity? <laughs> oh, why? Great question. Our time here is done. <laughs> You've got three minutes, and no, I'm just kidding. I think we've hit on it. Mm-hmm. It requires humility. Mm. And the openness to see somebody else's point of view. It's so easy um, to get hung up in my opinion and my, you know, my, the way I, I want things and my own comfort. And, um, but it starts with all of us becoming more Christ-like. Mm-hmm. I don't think the unity that, that God intended in the church is ever going to happen without the power of the Holy Spirit working in and amongst our community. Mm-hmm. And I think one takeaway I have from seminary is the power of community. How God models community within the Holy Spirit, with, with the Trinity. Mm-hmm. And so everything God did was communal in nature. Mm-hmm. And so if we can see Christian life in the, the lens of the Trinity, mm-hmm. I think it just opens us up to caring more for the community and community can mean a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. It's really any group of of believers that come together and maybe some people that kind of believe and don't believe it's still community. And so I I think that's a start. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And just loving people better. Mm -hmm. 
and loving ourselves better. I've, I've been freed from so much by finding my identity as the holy child of God. And living in that freedom helps me to love other people better. Love them for their sake and not out of some selfish need of mine mm -hmm. to have that love reciprocated. Yeah, I think those would lend to community. Thanks. Hey. Thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for your crazy microphones. <laughs> They'll get better with time. Brian, you're welcome back anytime. All right. Thanks, Pat.